and he started to ask me about something dealing with Georgia and preserving something potentially for appeal. Uh, and I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right? I said, I, I said, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. And then he screamed and said, I don't want to hear any other effing words coming out of your mouth, no matter what, other than orderly transition. Repeat those words to me. And I screamed and eventually he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And then I hung up on him. In fact, just a few days later, Dr. Eastman emailed Rudy Giuliani and requested that he be included on a list of potential recipients of a presidential pardon. That was an excerpt from the videotaped testimony of Trump White House lawyer Eric Hirschman describing a phone call he got from John Eastman the day after January 6th, in which the supposed constitutional scholar was unrepentant, still clinging to the idea that somehow, some way, the results of the 2020 election could still be overturned. It was a remarkable moment that was too much for Hirschman, telling Eastman that he was out of his effing mind and he needed a great criminal defense lawyer because he was going to need it. Words that Eastman, as we learned during Thursday's January 6th hearing, apparently took to heart, reaching out just days later to Rudy Giuliani in search of a presidential pardon. The testimony at the Thursday hearing was powerful, as the committee laid out in excruciating detail a relentless pressure campaign by Trump himself, aided at every step of the way by John Eastman, to get Vice President Mike Pence to unilaterally reject the certified election results, an authority that he demonstrably did not have. In some ways, it may have been the most significant presentation yet, laying out evidence that Eastman well knew what he was doing was potentially illegal and unconstitutional. Has the committee finally made its case that Trump and Eastman committed prosecutable crimes? And what more does the panel have in store? We'll talk to a reporter who has been all over the January 6th committee story from the start, Hugo Lowell of The Guardian, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And uh, Victoria Bassetti, our other co-host, cannot be with us today. But there is lots to talk about. And I just want to start out saying, look, I have at times on this podcast expressed some skepticism about whether there was sufficient evidence for the Justice Department to bring a prosecutable case against Donald Trump. And I've mainly focused on the fact that we have yet to see evidence that Trump or people in his orbit planned or were aware of the plans for violence at the Capitol on January 6th. And if you listen to our last podcast with Matt Miller and Saul Weisenberg, you heard similar skepticism about whether there was enough for the Justice Department to act. 
After listening to Thursday's hearing, I changed my mind. I thought that what was presented on Thursday with the testimony of Greg Jacob, Pence's former lawyer, and the uh, excerpts from Eric Hirschman and others was devastating because they showed that Eastman had good reason to know that what he was doing was illegal. At one point, he tells Jacob, according to Jacob's testimony, that the Supreme Court would reject Pence overturning the results by a vote of nine to nothing. Pretty strong yeah. evidence that it's unconstitutional. And he also tells him at another point that, you know, uh, of course, he wouldn't want Kamala Harris to ever do what he was suggesting that Mike Pence should do. And that Al Gore wouldn't have had the, the authority to do what he was suggesting Mike Pence, uh, you know, should do back in two, 2000. You add that to the search for a presidential pardon and you've got mens rea. Good reason to know that what he's doing is is illegal. But more than that, the you talk about Greg Jacobs' testimony, that all goes to, to Eastman. But right. what's really crucial, and that yeah. goes to Trump himself and intent, is that according to Greg Jacob on January 4th, Eastman, in front of Donald Trump, said that this plan would be a violation of the 1887 Electoral Counts Act and violate the Constitution as well. So that means that the lawyer that Trump is relying on for this scheme has said to Trump himself, this would be illegal. Just as his uh, attorney general, Bill Barr, told him uh, there was no evidence of uh, election fraud. Just as Pat Cipollone, his White House counsel, told him this whole fake elector scheme was was uh, ridiculous and uh, was bullshit. You couldn't do it. So the charge would be conspiring to obstruct a congressional proceeding, right? And this is essentially what... Judge Carter in that decision said, you know, it was more likely than not that Trump Trump had done that. That is really the case here, right? Not the violence as much, although that perhaps could get thrown in in some way as well. Well, you, you can throw it in. And, you know, look, there's a lot of really devastating tidbits that may not go directly to the crime, but for a jury, when you hear, for instance, Pence has told Trump <laughs> by January 5th that he can't do what Trump wants him to do. He doesn't have the authority. He's researched it. He's not going to do it. And what does Trump do? He puts out a demonstrably false statement saying that he and Pence are in total agreement that he has yeah. the authority to do what Pence has just told him he doesn't have the authority to do. So, I mean, there is a clear case of Trump lying to the world as part of this pressure campaign. I think, you know, you present this to a jury and, you know, you add that with the way that his mob responded when they learned that Pence was not going to do what Trump wanted him to yeah, do. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. You, you, if you're thinking about like a jury trial and yeah. you're thinking about laying out the evidence before a jury, a lot of what they showed in, in Thursday's hearing would be really powerful. And the thing that really uh, struck me was that montage that they did when Trump was speaking at the Ellipse on the morning of January 6th. And over and over again, he is imploring 
Pence to interfere in the election and saying that he's got the authority to do it and saying he'll be very disappointed in him if he, if he doesn't do it. It was just such clear and vivid evidence of how he's trying to overturn the election in a completely extra-constitutional way while at the same time, you know, whipping up the crowd, the mob, to go after Pence if he didn't, you know, quote, quote unquote, do the right thing. And then, you know, there's that, I think it was the, the tweet at, uh, at uh, 2.24. So after the violence is starting, after Trump has been told about the mob and about the assault on the Congress, and he puts out that tweet attacking Pence, and what happens? The crowds literally surge after that and start chanting, hang Pence, hang Pence, after Trump's tweet. And let's not forget, for jury appeal, the phone call between Trump and Pence, in which Trump is calling him a pussy and a wimp. For not I'm so glad doing... you didn't say the P word. <laughs> yeah. Sick of hearing the P word. Yeah. You can yeah. say that word. No, on this podcast, <laughs> yeah. pussy was the word in question uh, that Trump is calling his vice president. It's, I, I, you know, look. You lay that out to a jury and uh, especially you lay it out to a Washington, D.C. jury. It's hard to imagine you couldn't get a uh, criminal conviction here. Now, yeah, look, there is still the larger question about prosecuting a former president. And does that have a banana republic feel to it? And no case like this has ever been. This is what Matt Miller was saying. You know, this is there's not any really any precedent to bring this kind of a case, which will make the Justice Department and Merrick Garland nervous, I'm sure. Uh, but I agree with you. I think they've gotten much, much closer here. I, one other thing I just want to say, you started with that testimony from Hirschman. And I got to say, I, I love that guy because he doesn't he doesn't talk in the sort of careful, lawyerly way right. uh, that, that most of them do. I mean, he, he gives voice to how kind of normal, a normal person, you know, the, the, the members of Team Normal, if you will, to coin a yeah. phrase, who would feel about, you know, a malevolent lunatic uh, like John Eastman. Are you fucking out of your mind? So that was kind of just a great moment. By the way, the Team Normal comment does remind me that that came from Bill Stepien, who was the campaign manager, who tried to present himself as, you know, an adult in the room who wouldn't go along with this nonsense. It was a little disconcerting to read. I think The Washington Post had a story the next day about how Stepien since then has been a uh, consultant to MAGA candidates all over the country, including, I think, the one who's uh, running against. Liz Cheney. So yeah, there was a. So, uh, I think Frank Bruni had a column in the New York Times about uh, don't let Bill Barr and Stepien launder their reputations through the January sixth committee hearings. And so I'm sure there is some of that going on. There's some of that, and also I'll, I'll be a little maintain my contrarian instincts on one part of this, and that is you know this dispute between the Justice Department and the uh, committee for release of the transcripts. I don't understand that. I was going to ask uh, our guest what's going on there, but it, do you know why they're doing that? They're calling it work product, but what's the, what's the issue? I don't know. I, he, here's my, uh, you know, two cents for what it's worth on that. Once you play those excerpts from Jared Kushner's videotaped 
deposition and Ivanka Trump's videotape deposition. I'm sorry, you have an obligation to put out the whole thing then and there because playing excerpts is fine, but you know, did they say other things that point in a different direction or raise other questions or, you know, what is the context? Well, I, I think that really could come up. We don't know what the full context of what Trump said was, but when the committee you mean and Kushner and Ivanka said, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm actually going beyond Kushner and Ivanka. It's when in the first hearing, when Liz Cheney said that Trump, uh, when he heard that his supporters were saying hang Pence, that Trump said, well, maybe they've got the right idea. You know, maybe you know, uh, what what was the full context of that? Was he was he joking? Was it serious? I'm perfectly b willing to believe that it was totally serious, but we don't know. And I think you're right. They do have an obligation to put that out. Now, I will say I have not heard. Maybe they've done this. I haven't heard Ivanka or Jared say, you know, what was used in these hearings was taken out of context. I mean, if presumably I they think would they're have. just trying to lay low at this Perhaps. point. I mean, Jared Perhaps. Kushner's trying to collect money for his uh, overseas sovereign wealth fund or whatever <laughs> he's doing, you know, from the Saudis. But uh, and by the way, you know, I think Biden going to Saudi Arabia and meeting with MBS probably takes a bit of the sting out of, you know, Kushner making money off the Saudis. But, you know, just back to the Justice Department wants these transcripts because they want to know if some of the Proud Boys gave testimony that was that contradicts or in some ways is different from what they've got in their in the coming criminal case against the Proud Boys. And I understand that. But I'm looking at this through an entirely different lens, which is, you know, when you and I have covered congressional hearings in the past, you know, the full depositions are released. You don't just get excerpts. You get to see the whole thing. And this committee has chosen not to do that. And, uh, you know, Benny Thompson said yesterday they're too busy doing their work to release these transcripts. You know, I think the test should be when you play an excerpt from testimony, you should put out the whole thing. And by the way, in most previous hearings, you have the witnesses testifying live. Right. And, you know, there are, in addition to that, there, there are depositions, but they bring all, most of the witnesses before the committee to speak live and can also be cross-examined by the other side. There isn't another side in these hearings. Although I will say, you know, we talked on this podcast about how we, you know, something would be missing uh, without the sort of adversarial process. And, um, you know, I, I don't disagree with that. Certainly one thing that's missing um, is that it hasn't kind of descended into a complete partisan food fight where, you know, where, where the narrative gets disrupted, where people are left not knowing what to think about the evidence. And so one reason why I think these hearings have been surprisingly effective and kind of remarkable is because Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans made this, I think, huge tactical mistake by not participating. And, you know, so you the Democrats have been able to avoid the perception, the optics of this being a partisan uh, spectacle. You know, first you have Liz Cheney, who has probably been the most hawkish member of the committee. I mean, hawkish on January 6th and on Donald Trump, who also happens to be one of the most conservative members traditionally conservative members um, of Congress, you know, and then you have witness after witness after witness arrayed against Trump who were either in his inner circle, 
you know, or, you know, close advisors, deeply conservative, movement conservatives, you know, a la Bill Barr, or Judge Ludig, who we saw on Thursday. And then, you know, finally, if Trump is the villain in this drama, then Mike Pence- Which has, he is. Which, of course, way. he is. Then Mike, <laughs> right. Mike Pence has been uh, held up by this democratically controlled committee as, as an American hero. So all of that gives the uh, committee more than a patina of you know, transcending politics, um, even though there's clearly well, a there's political clearly dimension to this. Here. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, they have very cleverly, like, you know, made sure the witnesses are all Republicans, right? right. I mean, we haven't had a single Democratic witness uh, yet. Um, right. In this. All right. We got lots. There's look, the committee's got lots more up its sleeve. Uh, we've got a great guest to talk about what's coming and what has already transpired. You go Lowell, the Guardian. So let's get to it. OK, if you've been following the January 6th committee hearings on Twitter or Facebook or online, you no doubt have run across the stories of our guest, Hugo Lowell of The Guardian, who's been all over the uh, committee hearings from the start, broken lots of stories about it. Hugo, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. This is like a bucket list item. <laughs> so look, lots to talk about here. I want to get your take to start out how the committee hearings have gone so far. Are they breaking through? Are they doing what they've set out to accomplish here? Well, I think they had two goals, right? They had two audiences in mind when they went about these hearings or as they're going about these hearings. One audience is obviously the American public who has not seen a lot of the details that the committee has been showing. You know, people on the beat, people covering this, you know, the reporters know a lot of this material, but I think the American public who hasn't been looking at this particularly deeply is seeing a lot of the material for the first time. But the second audience, of course, is the Justice Department. And I think the committee has been making a very interesting case, laying out both the crimes they think Trump and Eastman and Giuliani and the and the rest of his top political operatives have been, you know, violating or violated in the in, in the weeks leading up to January sixth. And then they also seem to be stripping away a potential legal defense, you know, this concept of willful blindness that Trump was told that all of his election fraud claims are false and yet he promoted them anyway. And with respect to the campaign to pressure Pence and, you know, swapping out these fake electors and having Pence throw the election, um, he was also told there that the entire scheme was unlawful and yet continued anyway. So I think it's been a very interesting way. I thought the Thursday hearing was the most powerful yet because I thought it presented really strong evidence that Eastman knew what he was doing was unconstitutional and illegal. The idea that he, you know, conceded that the Supreme Court would reject nine to nothing <laughs> what he was urging Mike Pence to do. And then, of uh, course, asking for a pardon. And then asking for a pardon seems like consciousness of guilt right there. No? Yeah, I mean, consciousness of guilt and fear that he is going to be guilty of a crime, although he's not sure which crime because <laughs> he hasn't been charged yet. But 
the pardon thing was a big bombshell at the end. I don't think anyone saw that coming. You know, the committee has all of his emails and it's quite incredible to me that Eastman as a lawyer would be writing this stuff in emails to Giuliani. I mean, a lot of these guys were still at the Willard Hotel in, in their Trump war room in the days after January 6th. There was no reason to put it in an email, but he's leaving an evidentiary record for investigators to to pull through, which I thought was rather remarkable. I mean, I don't know. I mean, with, with Eastman, a lot of the stuff was already in, in court filings. I mean, he admitted in emails that he knew he was violating the Electoral Count Act that he was, you know, breaking the law. As you say, he, he was admitting to Greg Jacob that he knew he would lose 9 nothing. Hugo, did, did we know, because I don't think I knew this, I may have missed it, that Eastman in front of Trump said that what they were talking about would be a violation of the Electoral Count Act and, and the Constitution, because that's what Greg Jacob testified to. That seemed new to me and significant because it goes to Trump's intent. If Trump knows, if his lawyer is telling him, the lawyer who he has been relying on for all of this is telling him this is illegal, that seems significant to me. Yeah, I don't think we did know that. I think, I think you're right. And it, you know, every step of the way, Trump is being told that it's completely illegal and unconstitutional, right? I think, you know, he, Giuliani admits that he, he now on January 6th believes that Eastman's plans are unconstitutional and unlawful. And then Trump's being told by Eastman himself that it violates the ECA. Greg Jacob is telling him that it violates the ECA. Mark Short is saying, I mean, all of the, you know, to borrow a phrase, like all of the president's men are saying it's all illegal. And yet all of them go out on stage later that morning on January 6th and say, no, it's legal. You know, it's all on Pence. Pence has the power to do this, knowing full well that he didn't. And I think that really does speak to intent and corrupt intent at that. So you mentioned that one of the audiences here is the Justice Department. Um, some have you know, translated this to an audience of one, Merrick Garland, the attorney general. And yet, we have, while that's playing out, while that's the intended audience, we have this growing rift between the committee and the Justice Department over the release of their transcripts of interviews. The Justice Department wrote a letter urging, for the second time, urging the committee to release those transcripts. They're worried it's going to interfere with the criminal prosecution of uh, some of the Proud Boys, because I gather... At least some of them have testified to the committee. Is that correct? This guy, yeah. Biggs, for instance. So explain this. Like, why is the committee getting into a wrangle with the Justice Department? If it's the Justice Department, it's trying to influence. Shouldn't it be helping the Justice Department do what it's trying to do? Yes and no, because the committee wants to have control over its work product, at least until the end of the hearings is is the is the um, the, the understanding that I've gotten from kind of my sources. On yeah, the but I can right. I I just want to push back on that because I don't buy their explanation on this. Just as a matter of good governance for a congressional committee, you put out excerpts from a deposition. You have an obligation to release the whole deposition. I just don't want to see like one line from Jared Kushner. If you're going to play that. 
release the whole thing. Same with Ivanka Trump. Um, same with this guy Hirschman. If you're playing excerpts, you have, and this is the way congressional committees have done it in the past. You show part of a deposition, you got to release all of it so people can see the full context. How is it that the committee thinks it can get away with not doing that? Well, they get away with not doing that because they don't have a full-on minority and, you know, minority members on the council and minority council, right? right. They get or, away, they've got the votes. giving them shit for not doing it, which is the way things often traditionally work. You, you, well, we have you given make them a it... lot of shit. I mean, it's like okay. yeah. the, the, the thing with the committee is like these hearings as slick as they are, they're almost a little bit too slick, right? It's like a 60 yes. minutes episode where you learn the conclusion up front and then they're like, oh, here are our little evidentiary bites you get to support our conclusion. You don't hear any of, you don't hear any of the other context. You don't know what was said, you know, 30 seconds before, 30 seconds after, you know, Ivanka or Chad or whoever these guys are, whatever they're saying. Like, you know, case in point with this Giuliani being inebriated stuff. Well, yeah, he was inebriated or he might've been inebriated, but no one asked Jason Miller if he was drunk. No one asked Jared if he was drunk. Like, were they all drunk? But no one knows because the committee won't play the entire thing. These are not investigative hearings in the sense that Watergate was or the Iran-Contra right. hearing was. They know what the story is. They, they have their narrative. They have their conclusions. And now they are making the case to the public. And so I wanted to ask you because, you know, you mentioned uh, two audiences, the American public and the Justice Department. But in terms of the kind of political objectives here, one thing that I keep thinking as I watch Liz Cheney in particular is that it seems to me that one of the objectives is forget about a criminal prosecution of Donald Trump. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. But she has been single-minded since January 6th, and she has said this explicitly over and over again, single-minded about just preventing him from ever becoming president again. That seems to be one of her main objectives here. Is there a sense in which, you know, from your reporting on the committee, that part of what they're trying to do here is just tarnish Trump and the MAGA support around him to keep him from ever holding office again? Yeah, I think so, but not without good reason, right? I mean, oh, I'm no, no, absolutely. I'm not disputing that. I'm just talking about what their strategy is, what their objectives are. Look, I mean, Cheney, the one thing about this committee is that all the members have their own agendas. And, you know, this has really been stark in the last kind of few days, actually. You know, with criminal referrals, you see these members who want to make, you know, a formal criminal referral and say, you need committed crimes, DOJ, you need to investigate and prosecute him. And then the members which are like, they'll just send the evidence over and they can decide themselves if they want to prosecute Trump because the moment you do a criminal referral, any resulting investigation, right, is going to have political taint on it almost. And I know some of the members are worried about that. So each of the members, I think, have different objectives. Cheney has obviously, as you say, been on a wall path, wants to totally eviscerate Trump. But I think it comes from a place not, you know, she may have presidential ambitions in the future, who knows. But it's certainly true that the evidence that the select committee seems to have backs up the point that do you really want someone who was knowingly and willingly violating the law be on a presidential ticket again? I'm curious when you say turn over the evidence to the committee, they're going to write a report. What do they have in mind? Is, is the model, the roadmap that the Watergate committee eventually turned over or 
Well, I'm trying to remember, Mike. The, the the roadmap was actually was Jaworski that turned Jaworski it over to the, the to the to the committee. Worth mentioning that we are speaking on the fiftieth anniversary, anniversary of the Watergate of break-in. Watergate, the last you know big mega political scandal that rocked right. the country. But they do. I mean, you know, from the start, in in the way that they put together this committee and the staff. I mean, most of the, how many prosecutors do they have? Right, they have like most of the staff have experience uh, actually prosecuting cases. So they have been thinking about this as a as a criminal, potential criminal prosecution from the beginning. So I understand that they don't need to send over a formal referral. But what do we think they're going to give, they're going to make public or give the Justice Department that will further that particular agenda of going for a prosecution? What's, what's it going to look like? I mean, I don't think the committee knows yet, frankly. Yeah. I think... You know, based on the conversations that the, the senior counsels are having, and you know, as you say, they're all former prosecutors. Like Tim Hafey is a former U.S. attorney, for Christ's sake. I mean, in Virginia, yeah. So these are all, you know, they know how DOJ works, and I think there is an appetite to kind of package the evidence against individual people. That's kind of what I've heard. They want to make it so that you know, here's the dossier. <laughs> I mean, the word dossier is kind of charged, but they want to you know put together a file, shall we say, a file against you know Eastman and, and all of all the stuff that he was doing and a file against Trump and then collate these things and just send them to the Justice Department. Like there is a mechanism for them to do that through I believe it's the Office of Legislative Affairs at DOJ. Like people talk about criminal referrals like it's an actual thing. Like they go to the right. DOJ website and download a form and like yes tick I would like to make a referral today. That doesn't even exist for the contempt stuff. Right, the contempt of Congress referrals, which are statutory and DOJ have, have to act on. It sounds like to me they want to put together its report. When they do the final report, they will have all the exhibits and the evidence linked as footnotes, and then they will have a cover letter and they'll send it all off to DOJ saying, you know, here are what we investigated. You know, while we were investigating for our legislative purpose, we found all these crimes. And so, you know, we want to bring it their to findings are in effect a criminal referral. They don't have to call it that. Right. In and of itself. Right. Like, and the committee, I think, has become very attuned to the fact that the moment they start calling in a criminal referral, it opens them up to challenges that they're trying to act as a law enforcement agency. And they really have to avoid that. We have this rift between, you know, Benny Thompson, the chairman and Cheney, the vice chairman, about whether to do a criminal referral. Thompson said flatly (laughs) the other day, they're not going to do it. So like, I thought that was pretty striking that uh, Benny Thompson would explicitly, without, I don't believe the committee's held a vote on this matter, right, would dismiss something that he knows, you know, members of the panel want to do. What's going on there? I think Benny doesn't want to do a referral and Liz wants to do a referral. And Benny has become very good at using reporters to further his own agenda, right? Like we were saying earlier, like they all have their own agendas. Like Benny has become very smart in using reporters on Capitol Hill to get ahead of discussions, I should say, right? He, if he doesn't want something, he will, he will go talk to reporters and, and lay it out in a way to say, you know, I don't want to, I as the chairman don't want to do this. He won't say it like that, but you know, if, you, if you've been listening to him for a long time, you know that the way he starts to talk his mannerisms, he kind of couches things as I, in my capacity as chairman, 
would not expect to make a criminal referral. But he's not saying, I speak on behalf of a committee. And so he plays these little games and then reporters and, you know, newspapers like pick up on things like, oh, the chairman says so the chairman must have, you know, the committee must have decided when it's not. That just hasn't happened at all. So what is your look? You've been following this as closely as anybody. What is your sense of the levels of friction or tension within the committee itself? I wouldn't call it friction or tension. I think it's the committee hasn't had an opportunity to sit down and assess what they're going to do next yet. And a lot of these discussions have just been taking place off the house floor. Like, you know, they have impromptu huddles. They'll discuss this every now and again. They've not had a formal sit down discussion about any of this stuff because they've been so focused on the hearings. So I think it's, you know, people have different ideas about what should happen, you know, with respect to their final product, whether they do a report or whether it's criminal referrals or whatever it is. I think it's a rift in so far as they just have different ideas of what should happen. At the end of the day, they're going to have to vote on it. And, you know, the result will be what the result is. I mean, I have to believe that if it comes to a vote, <laughs> they will vote to do criminal referrals. You know, you just look at the members and it's hard to imagine that, you know, Schiff, Raskin, <laughs> you know, Luria and the rest are not going to vote to do a uh, criminal referral. They've been pretty out there. How many more hearings do you expect? I know there, there are going to be hearings on uh, next Tuesday and Thursday, and then more beyond that. Have they set a total number of hearings that they're going to put on? And then I would love to hear a preview of what is coming next. What's your answer to the first question in terms of the number of hearings? So it's going to be total set. So I, I kind of, you know, I took a while to extract this. But uh, so you're hearing it first, actually. Um, it's going to be total seven. The next one will be on the 21st, then it will be on the 23rd, and then you'll have two in the final week of June, uh, the 27th, and then the final date is TBC. Basically, what they're doing is on the 21st, they're going to, at the, the plan at the moment, and it could change, is for them to discuss how Trump illegally directed the mob to the Capitol. That's on next Tuesday. The following Thursday, they're going to do the DOJ hearing that was rescheduled. And they'll have about how Trump pressured the DOJ to investigate voter fraud and how he wanted to replace the leadership with Jeff Clark as environmental lawyer. And then on the 27th, I believe, yeah, the 27th, Raskin will lead that one. That'll be about the militia groups and their kind of coordination in attacking the Capitol and you know their planning with Stop the Steal. And then I believe the last one's slated for the 29th, but that's not formally decided at all. And that will be, it's supposed to be the prime time one again, um, that it looks at the, they've been calling it like the 167 minutes or whatever it is that Trump learned that the Capitol had been breached. He did nothing. He was, you know, watching in the, you know, eating his burgers. And you know. so that's, so that's, the, the that, that's the grand crescendo of what Trump was doing during that afternoon while violence was um, occurring at the Capitol. Right. And then like expressing like approval for, you know, we know one of the things we know is like expressing approval for Pence being hanged. That kind of. So do we expect a live witness or witnesses for that? Who do they got? I don't know. I don't know if Cassidy. So they've been talking to Cassidy Hutchinson. That's, That's what I topic. was wondering. I was going to ask you about her because she sort of emerged out of in nowhere. the last few weeks out of nowhere. She's a, a was an aide to Mark Meadows. And I gather she's the one who heard directly from Meadows that that Trump said these things about, well, maybe the people who want to hang Pence are right. And I think there were other. Do we know that, that that was her? 
That's been reported. I don't, you know. Yeah, that 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 came. That's through, her I think, testimony. I believe so. Yeah. So I no. was surprised that we have, haven't actually seen her, but maybe they're holding her back for the last uh, hearing. I, or I think that's the idea because Cassidy. I mean, Cassidy has been billed almost like a John Dean, and I, I don't know how much of that is true. Like the the problem I have with this committee, and the problem that I've always had with this committee is they are relying on testimony of, you know, one or two people that would, it would be very difficult to stand up in court, right? If Cassie Hutchinson is saying, oh, well, you know, Trump through inaction obstructed Congress because he wasn't doing anything and he was watching the thing unfold, like that's just Cassidy saying that. I mean, it's, there's nothing else to back that up. I mean, the other thing that I think came from Cassie Hutchinson's testimony was about how Meadows was burning things in his fireplace uh, or burning papers in his fireplace after he met with Scott Perry. But just because he was burning stuff in his fireplace after meeting with Scott Perry doesn't mean he was burning anything incriminating. You know, he might have been burning his lunch order for, you know, for all we know. And I think the committee likes to draw these lines and these these kind of connect the dots, but it's not always clear that that's exactly what was going on. And I don't know if it, they always have the evidence back. It's a, it's a nice story. I have to say, you know, burning documents in the White House does strike me as suspicious on its face. Right. Not something on the face. one normally does. But yes, you need more evidence. But this gets to the sort of, you know, package nature of these hearings. Like, right, you know, they throw stuff out there. Now, in Thursday's hearings, they backed it up. They showed the email in which Eastman is requesting a pardon from Rudy Giuliani to get a presidential pardon, right? So they backed that up. The previous week, they threw out there that, uh, you know, multiple members of Congress, I think that's the way Liz Cheney put it, had sought presidential pardons. The only one she named was Scott Perry, who denied it. At this point, it's been over a week now. What's the evidence they got? to back up that multiple members of Congress sought presidential pardons for themselves and not others. I don't know. Right. And like, that's what I mean. Like, if, well, that's a problem if that is from Cassidy. Well, that, that is the problem. And if it's, if it's Cassidy saying, Oh, I overheard Meadows saying someone wanted, someone wanted pardons and Scott Perry wanted pardons. You know, I heard in the meeting that Scott Perry wanted a pardon. like that's very thin. And I hope that if they're going to make that sort of claim in the first hearing that they have more than that and, I kind of suspect that if Liz Cheney is going to go out and name Scott Perry, that she has more evidence than just, you know, someone like Cassie Hutchinson testifying that, you know, she believed Scott Perry asked for a pardon. But, but, but coming back to the earlier thing about, you know, the, the burning documents, like the Times reported that, and Maggie Haberman reported that people knew he was burning documents because the smell was familiar in the West Wing. Well, if the smell was familiar, then that means he has been doing it before and has been doing it often enough for people to recognize the smell. So then, how indicative of, you know, is that of... <laughs> well, why is he burning all those other documents? <laughs> what else by the way, but by the way, hasn't he yeah. heard of a, of a paper shredder? <laughs> exactly. All right. So the other potential witness that emerged uh, just in the last few days, which is intriguing, uh, is Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, a MAGA activist who was involved in efforts to overturn the election, sending letters to uh, members of the legislature in Arizona, many texts uh, to Mark Meadows. The committee wants her to testify. I think there was some debate, and, and I think she wasn't going to, or they didn't want her. They, they concluded they didn't need her to. But then these emails between her and Eastman emerged. Now they want her to. She's responded by saying that she 
welcomes the opportunity to clarify uh, any you know misconceptions about all of this. Uh, do we think she's going to testify? And how significant do you think it is if she does? The Ginny stuff has been very difficult to cover because Thompson has, you know, Thompson has previously said we're going to call her in to testify, and then they never did. And he has been one of the people who really has not been interested in Ginny Thomas at all. In fact, you know, back in March, you know, he kind of pulled me aside one day and said, you know, when I was asking about Ginny Thomas, and he says like, you know, she's a right wing activist. We I'm not surprised and we kind of expect her to be involved, you know, involved to some degree in all of this because that's what she does. She's a Republican. She's, you know, he said, quote, he's a, she's a right winger. She's an activist. This is what she does. It would be interesting, though, if she does testify. And it sounds like the committee is now going to send her a letter. Ultimately, if she does testify about this heated fight that Eastman refers to in emails with Kenneth Cheeseboro, this heated fight among the justices that was going to emerge if, if they didn't hear election cases. And my question would be, well, did Eastman know that because Ginny was feeding him inside information from the court? Or was he just opining this because people generally know that the courts don't like to intervene in intragovernmental disputes? I think I, I read that he has, uh, in a maybe a medium post, said that he had no inside information from Ginny Thomas that he knew about this based on, of course, I'm just giving him his, just giving him his say that uh, he knew about this from press reports. Well, wait a second. Didn't we just get, didn't we just get testimony yesterday that Eastman himself told Jacob that the Supreme Court would reject what they were trying to do nine to nothing, which suggests that Thomas and Alito would not be. Well, but wait a second, wait a second, but there there are different cases of the case, but there are different, there are different appeals that the Supreme Court could have taken. I mean, these appeals from Pennsylvania, from all these different states, that's that's different from, you know, whether the Supreme Court would have upheld, you know, their shredding of the Electoral Count Act. So right. we're talking about a little bit apples and oranges here. No, I know. I think, you know, the general gist is, you know, Jenny Thomas and John Eastman wanted to overturn the results of the election any way they could. And, you know, it is, look, What strikes me about this is the people that want them to go after Ginny Thomas don't really believe it's going to shed light on Donald Trump's behavior in the white. It's It's a a sideshow. They want to use it to go after Clarence Thomas. No, no, that's exactly right. And and Benny Thompson has been very clear about this from the start, that that's not what he wants the committee to do. He, He has said to me kind of privately, at least, if... Democrats want to do that. They need to do that through the House Judiciary Committee. They need to do that through the Senate Judiciary Committee. They shouldn't be using our committee, which is about fact-finding the genesis of the Capitol attack and you know the insurrection, to do that. And so I think he's very concerned that if the committee starts to go after Ginny and Clarence Thomas, then the entire investigation gets tarred with you know the only thing Democrats want to do is to you know remove Clarence Thomas and put a Democratic justice on the bench. And I don't think Liz Cheney will go along with that. I don't think she wants the committee to go in that direction. She certainly, you know, doesn't have any animus towards Clarence Thomas, who, by the way, you know, there was that one case about turning over documents where who's the dissenter. But, you know, in every other instance where things have come before the Supreme Court, he has not sided with the MAGA crowd. He has not done what his wife presumably would want him to do. He didn't dissent from the refusal of the Supreme Court to take up the Texas case, for for example, which was the key, 
That was the key. That was what the the Trump people were resting on. Yes, yes. And Clarence Thomas did not go along with that. So I think, you know, that doesn't often get included in some of the media coverage of this, but you go free advice to you uh, when you're next reporting on this. You might want to point that out. You know, one thing you didn't mention uh, in terms of the upcoming hearings, and I believe they've got one devoted to the pressure on state legislators, particularly in Georgia, right? When is that? And is Brad Raffensperger going to testify? Who do they got for that? So my understanding what they're going to try and fold that into the DOJ hearing because it all kind of ties together, right? Like like Trump wanted the DOJ to send a letter to Georgia, you know, that proof of concept letter is what he called it, um, where they say, you know, we're investigating uh, election fraud. And so I, I believe the pressure on the, on the states and, the, and, and, you know, people like Raffensperger was supposed to come in that hearing. I do know that they're trying to negotiate Raffensperger to appear as a live witness, and that has run into a couple of hiccups. So what are the hiccups on that? I don't know exactly. They're trying to ne- they're trying to negotiate the scope of his potential testimony, right? Like Raffensperger already won its primary. So it's not like there's any ele- election kind of considerations that he has to take into account. But, you know, like with Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, the January 6th committee, I think, is struggling to the committee always wants more than these witnesses want to give, especially in the case of Cipollone and Raffensperger. And I think they're running into difficulty trying to tie down the scope of this. Well, also, Raffen- Raffensperger, as we reported, has also been before the grand jury in Fulton County in Georgia. So he has to, and I'm sure his lawyers are telling him that he has to be careful in uh, making sure that his testimony before the January 6th committee is consistent with what he said before the Fulton County grand jury. So, you know, there are some potential landmines there. So if I were him, I would probably also want to limit the scope of my testimony. I think they should have Gabe Sterling. Uh, He would make a great witness. Uh, Yeah. 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 Uh, um, uh, You know, uh, uh, the guy who told Trump in December, you got to stop this or people are going to get killed. And, you know, yeah. Has, why uh, wouldn't they call him? He would be a lot more colorful than I think uh, Raffensperger, who's, you know, very, you know, the staid engineer who, you know, chooses his words carefully. All right. So bottom line, you go when the hearings you're saying will go into the end of the month and then, you know, one potentially run into one. a Supreme Court ruling, by the way, you know, they were yeah, keen to yeah. avoid this. And now they're running straight into a decision on Roe, which which is not going to be great for them. But So that would presumably play out by early July. Then when does the committee deliver its final report? Slated for September. Like, you know, I think people forget sometimes that this investigation is still ongoing. You know, the committee doesn't have everything at once yet. It only just got Eastman's final tranche of emails on Monday. Um, they're still awaiting documents from the RNC and that lawsuit. They are still trying to get a new, more depositions with some of the people indicted for seditious conspiracy before they put it all together. So they're going to be working pretty hard, I think, through the summer. And then the idea is to release a report in September that outlines all the potential crimes. So here's my question about the re- my question and my suggestion about the report, not that they're listening to me. Who's going to write this report? Because their staff is made up of a bunch of lawyers, and lawyers typically aren't aren't the greatest writers, um, and they 
presumably are going to want a ripping yarn, just a great narrative. Um, are you volunteering? Uh, no, that? no. I have, an, <laughs> I have an idea for this. I, I may have mentioned this before, but I think they ought to get Mark Bowden to write the report, who is one of the great nonfiction writers, author of Black Hawk Down and you know lots of other great riveting books. And he wrote this book called, the, we had the him on, Steel. The Steel, right. which, uh, you know, goes into all of these, uh, all of these issues. So I think that's who I would get. To I, you it. know, actually, that's not a good choice, because if you remember, we had Bowden on the podcast. Yeah. And while he was, you know, his, his book, The Steel, uh, it was about all the efforts to overturn the election, but he was kind of dismissive of the events of January 6th. Remember, he writes in the book that, you know, they had a much chance that, you know, the rioters on January 6th about a, had about as much chance of overturning the U.S. government as the people who surrounded the Pentagon during the Vietnam War thinking they could make it like, you know, dissolve in air or something. It wasn't going to happen. And okay. if anything, I think the testimony on Thursday reinforced that. Because, you know, if what Jacob said Eastman agreed was right, even if Mike Pence had gone along with what Donald Trump would have wanted him to do, the Supreme Court would have overturned it nine to nothing. The American Republic would have stood. Joe Biden would be president and and, and Donald Trump would still be in Mar-a-Lago. So anyway, so come up with another. How about Michael Lewis? <laughs> Michael Lewis, maybe. Or our old rewrite guy, Evan Thomas. The oh, master yeah. yeah he would do a brilliant job. He would do a fabulous job. But actually, to, to your point, they are actually trying to find people to write this and it's not going to be lawyers. And I do know at least one part of two people who been approached by the committee to write it and they are one is a non-fiction writer and one is a historian oh really can you say who they are i don't know if i can well i i, I don't know if i can say who they are i think well someone who has been approached i believe is ruth ben um yeah but i'm not sure about uh, she's uh, a historian right sure. jill lapore would be a good person to write she's a great writer and a historian maybe the committee should do a proposal and send it to <laughs> exactly <laughs> rfp right i i do know by the way that there are a number of hollywood screenwriters who have been trying to get in on the action and have been talking to the committee so uh you know we got tv producers hollywood screenwriters historians uh in the mix anyway you go i want to thank you um for your insights and your continued coverage. Obviously, there's a lot more to talk about. So we want to stay in touch for and, and have you back. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much for having me. Like I said, it's been great. 